the story of Africa over the course of this next century is going to be an urbanization story. People leaving the countryside, looking for opportunity in cities. And then the question is, are African states sufficiently resourced to make that happen in a non-chaotic manner? And if we look at the data, it suggests that they aren't, right? So we've got multi-billion dollar infrastructure deficits across the continent. We desperately need infrastructure. Given where Africa is coming from, I think what it looks like is Africans feeling a sense of pride rooted in, in the achievements that their countries have been able to earn and sustain. I think real equality is when a person talks to you and speaks to you, respecting not just you, but respecting where you've come from, respecting your history, and sees that as of equal standing to their own. And I think that's the, the thing I would like for Africans of all types in the future when they're thinking about their continent. Hello and welcome to the Africa Dialogues. I'm your host, Laura Chikonya, and here we explore the big stories and trends transforming the continent today, told by decision makers, thinkers, and doers. Today's guest is Muya Musukotwanye, co-managing partner, co-founder, and CEO of Tebe Investment Management, a Zambian private investment firm building the new satellite town in Kwashi, one of Africa's top 20 largest real estate development projects. Muya was acknowledged as one of Africa's brightest leaders in the 2018 Forbes Africa 30 under 30 list, co-created the Zambia Technology Sector Working Group, and is helping pioneer his country's status as an innovation and tech hub, an initiative backed by Ethereum founder Vitalik Buterin. During our chat, Mui and I discussed why Africa's story in the near future is going to be one of urbanization, where Zambia's best and brightest are today, why potential for impact is higher in Africa, and how the continent's future will be determined by self-sufficiency and what Africa can do for itself. Here's our conversation. Muya, it's such a pleasure to have you on the Africa Dialogues podcast. You are spearheading a couple of really exciting projects and really important projects for African development right now. So I hope that today we can cover just a small part of the really big things that you're doing. And I look forward to an optimistic conversation. So welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. So I think it would make sense to kind of begin our conversation around what's happening in Zambia today. Let's talk about the topic of Zambia's business and investment journey. There's much talk about how Zambia is reinventing itself to welcome more investors, adopt more progressive policies and redirect its economy. And as a large scale private investor, how have the changes worked their way into your business and what other developments would you like to see undertaken? So here, feel free to just speak about the general situation and, and your thoughts on it. Sure. So I think in speaking about the general situation, I have to give sort of historical context for where Zambia is at and its, its journey. So I came back to Zambia you know, a little over 10 years ago now. And at the time, the economy was growing at 6-7% per annum. And it had been growing you know, at that pace for several years. So there was a lot of momentum. And Within about four years of my coming back to Zambia, the economic situation started to change. And 
the primary reason is that Zambia was borrowing a lot of money for sort of like massive infrastructure projects, but it was like typically overspending on those infrastructure projects. So the scale up in debt wasn't necessarily lining up with the the quality and the extent of infrastructure that was being rolled out. Um, so for instance, some of the roads that the government at the time built are already like pretty severely damaged. So all of that started to affect Zambia's monetary environment. So you know, the country went from something like sub-20% debt-GDP ratio to now well over 100% debt-GDP ratio. And so we started exporting a lot of USD to repay the interest on those loans, and that started to affect the exchange rate. And so it basically collapsed. So again, for reference, when I came back to Zambia after living in the UK for a number of years, the exchange rate was one US dollar to five Zambian kwacha. Within a year, you know, it, it had sort of stabilized to around six Zambian kwacha to the US dollar and stayed there for some time. And then, you know, it collapsed to about 12 Zambian kwacha to a US dollar, you know, within 18 months of us starting in Kwashi, uh, which is the large project we're working on here. And then today it's currently at 19 Zambian kwacha to a US dollar. Right? So that's a very significant dive in in sort of like value. And what that did is that it, it affected everything. So the economy slowed down. Uh, people's real purchasing power came down significantly. So you know, that affected consumption. There was a general slowdown in investment. And this was happening at a time where the government at the time was also basically in acrimonious engagements with large investors. Uh, so typically the mining companies here. And Again, you know, that didn't really do us any favors because then USD supply was pretty short uh, in an already challenging context. All, all of that economic pressure basically manifested in general desire amongst the populace to change government. And that's what happened in 2021. So we had an election and there was a new government that was elected. And their mandate was to fix the economy. And, you know, as a as a consequence of that, what's been happening is that the government has been trying to reposition the image of the country. So going from having a lot of hostility towards the mining companies to taking a much more sort of like open and uh, positive attitude towards them, you know, basically promoting itself to foreign investors uh, in the new energy economy. So you know, looking at more mining investment happening, broadening the type of mining that's taking place. So Zambia has historically been known as a copper miner, but now, you know, the, the government is trying to expand on nickel, expand on lithium, expand on manganese, cobalt, you know, all these sort of like minerals which are necessary for battery production and, and you know, the manufacture of motors, electric motors. So the general posture has been changing. And what we're seeing is we're starting to have a lot more people from outside of the country engage us regarding coming to Zambia to set up different businesses. As a, as a large developer, for instance, I've had conversations with people who want to come and build a university on our site. At least two groups have expressed that interest. We've had several other 
folks uh, coming in, talking about investing in technology, investing in data centers, and things of that sort. So I think there's a, there's a general sense amongst investors who follow Africa that um, Zambia is open for business again. And so what we're seeing is interest. Has that changed the economic situation entirely? Not yet. And that's partly because Zambia's economic problems are, are very challenging, right? So it defaulted on its, uh, on its debt about two years ago. And so now it has to negotiate with its uh, bondholders and various other creditors uh, to reprofile that debt. Um, so until that's done, there's still like this this weight that is stuck on Zambia's back, which which is subduing the potential growth. Yeah, and, and you know, new investment also takes time to sort of like build momentum and for the capital that's being spent to sort of like you know circulate its way through the economy, it takes time. Um, so what we're seeing now is you know, a lot of light at the end of the tunnel, but you know we're still in the tunnel. My first reaction to what you just said is to move to kind of two directions. You mentioned the amazing infrastructure project that you are spearheading now, which is a satellite city and one of the top 20 largest real estate projects on the continent. That's something that I definitely want to get into with you. But you also spoke about what Zambia's economy traditionally looks like and opportunities to increase mining capabilities. But on the other hand, we see Zambia positioning itself as a tech and innovation hub. And I know that you're playing a really important role in this repositioning. And that's something that I would love to speak about. You're currently pushing for Zambia's technology development within the Zambia tech sector working group. Why do you think that Zambia has potential to become Africa's tech epicenter? And what needs to happen in order to achieve that? Cool. Um, yeah, that's a great question. So Zambia, you know, has had a pretty solid track record as far as like social stability is concerned. We, we haven't really ever had major conflict with any of our neighbors. You know, we, we've not really had any social unrest. We've now had seven presidents and, you know, those seven presidents have had at least three uh, different political parties, I think, uh, three or four. So I think there's this credibility within the social stability sort of like context, right? The thing Zambia doesn't really have is a significant cadre of its own technologists, right? So we have a small but growing number of people who pursue studies in, in uh, computer science, and are working for global IT businesses or, or you know technology groups, but we haven't yet hit a critical mass. You know, at least nowhere near as close as Kenya or Nigeria. The thing that we have though is the social stability. And if you look at Nigeria, the thing that they haven't had for for quite a while is is like safety, right? So just two years ago, for instance, we had. Um, we saw like the NSARS protest in Nigeria where young people hit the streets in Lagos to protest what they saw as like excessive force used by the police, where sometimes police would abduct people, hold them for ransom or be overly aggressive. And I remember one time talking to a friend of mine who, who runs a technology business in Nigeria and he was saying, you know, one of his coworkers, uh, had been abducted. And I was like, oh, wow, that's crazy. You know, like, and I asked him, I was like, who abducted, who abducted him? And he was like, the police abducted him. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's wild. 
you know, and, and so, you know, a lot of folks in many African countries would love to live in Africa, they would love to live in their own countries, but for whatever reason, a lot of the times it's just not ideal for them. So we've seen a lot of people migrating to Dubai and, and to Canada and to the UK over the last uh, several years. And a lot of that really comes down to fear of harm from, from criminals. And what we think Zambia has to offer is a, a safe place for people to live and raise their families and sort of like enjoy their work. And so what we're trying to do is to create a pull factor, to create the sort of like incentive mix that can draw people from around the continent to Zambia to live and work here specifically people who are working on technology projects or work for a venture-backed business, have them come to live in Zambia and then sort of like aggregate all that talent here and allow for a signaling effect to also start to manifest where a lot of the people who already live here will be like, oh, it looks like there's a lot of interest uh, globally in this tech thing. Why, why don't I learn the skills to participate in this? So that's basically what we're trying to do, like create this flywheel where people come to live here and work on tech stuff. And then locals see that and also want to work on tech stuff. And then you end up having this community of locals and so like foreign talent that's living together and working together. And what we believe is necessary to make this happen is mostly just a concerted effort by the state to market Zambia as a destination for people to live. And then to also remove the barriers that exist for people to actually pursue that. So the barriers are immigration policy, uh, taxation policy, and ownership rights for property as well, right? So if a person decides to leave the country and potentially live in Zambia, you know, for five years, two years, or even permanently, they might want to own the house that they live in, right? Um, and currently, uh, as is the case in many African countries, it's hard for non-permanent residents to own property in Zambia. It's hard to get immigration status in Zambia. Taxation in Zambia, because it's uh, sort of like very dependent on pay-as-you-earn taxes, is fairly high, right? So you're talking, you know, close to 40% of of uh, pay uh, in tax. So what we've been advocating for is for technology as a as an industry uh, as a sector of the uh, of the economy to be a protected space. Zambia's done that in the past for other industries. So agriculture is a protected space in Zambia. Um, agricultural businesses only pay something like five to ten percent of their profits from operations in taxes. So, you know, that was done to encourage people to become farmers. So we would like a similar sort of posture to be extended to tech workers, where a person who works for a Microsoft or a Google or a Yandex and lives in Zambia would be taxed at that lower threshold. You know, that gives them a lot of incentive to want to be here. Enabling them to then be able to own the home that they live in is more incentive for them to want to come here. Making it easy for them to get immigration status or permanent residency here would be more incentive, especially because a lot of other countries in the region are typically very much like Zambia is today, where it's hard to get immigration status, tax rates tend to be high. Um, so there isn't a lot of reason for people want to come here. And that's why I think a lot of young people who are professionals and working in tech are like, okay, I'm just going to go to Dubai um, where you know the tax rate is zero. But yeah, it's super expensive to live there, but on a net-net basis, I'm probably going to still end up saving more.
or you know, I'm going to live in London. Fine, I'm going to pay 20% taxes, and my you know flat's going to be expensive, but you know, quality of life is going to be better than it is sitting in you know whichever African capital that person is sitting in or city, and you know, they didn't sort of like make that decision to to leave, but you know. Uh, London and Dubai still aren't Africa. And so a lot of folks, when they go to these places, they still face prejudice. And so our view is that making Zambia a preferred destination would at the very least mean that they, they wouldn't, you know, they'll be optimizing for living in a place where they're unlikely to face those sort of prejudicial um, attitudes. Wow, that that's that's fascinating. And I think that there's a lot of conversations that need to take place around the issue of barriers that are stopping good things from happening inside of Africa. I think the AFCFTA was a huge example of how it was so hard for African countries to trade with one another because of barriers within the continent. And I think that what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, it's about taking away as many of the barriers as possible to really let, in the case of Zambia, your country shine and offer a safe space to to flourish essentially is talent retention amongst africans something that you've thought a lot about in the context of this issue or is it more about innovation and tech opportunities i think it's it's definitely all the above right so i have a friend uh, who i spend quite a lot of time talking about this type of stuff with and a couple of days ago you know he sort of like texted me and uh, this link to an article and he asked me this one question is like what are Zambia's best and brightest doing with their talent right and my response was I don't know <laughs> uh, and one of the reasons I don't know is that we don't have a critical mass of those people living in Zambia they're sort of like spread all over the world like I've met super talented Zambians doing really incredible things um, so for instance, about you know, 18 months ago, I met this one guy who's a um, is an aeronautical engineer, and he works on jet propulsion for GE in, in the US, and is the lead engineer. Right? So a random Zambian guy leads the design of jet propulsion mechanisms for GE. Right? I didn't really expect that until I met the guy. You know, I know Zambians who work as you know, star head fund managers you know, like superstar biologists. Uh, you've got Dambisa Moyo, you know, who's sort of like super visible in her own area of expertise. Like there's loads of people. Like a more interesting one is I met this one guy who left Zambia to live in Japan 30 years ago and then ended up working for a company that was designing the missile guidance systems for MiG aircraft, <laughs> right? And I was like, that is super random. You know, this this random Zambian PhD guy is building... <laughs> Uh, missile design systems and and so you know there's like all this talent which is disaggregated and it's very atomized and it's spread out all over the world and so because of that effect there's a lot of anonymity like a lot of these people don't know each other and they're just sort of content to live their lives and, and thrive but the consequence for the country is that the best and brightest aren't here for the most part right I think in, in prior generations, they were because they'll get trained by the state, leave, come back. And typically, they'll end up working for state-controlled uh, entities. But, you know, since Zambia started opening up its economy, that hasn't been the case anymore. You know, people would leave and not come back. And 
Now, if you think about Zambia as just like one country out of 54 in Africa, and all of them are sort of exporting the best talent to the rest of the world, it kind of means that the brain drain issue affects the second part of the question that you asked, which is, is this about innovation? It's like you can't really innovate if your sharpest minds are working on problems that have got nothing to do with Africa for the most part, right? And odds are they aren't even living in Africa. You know, so they're, they're aiding the development of all the various other countries that they live in. And so how do you make it so those people come back, right? And I think the way they do so is initially they probably come back and work for businesses that can offer them economic compensation equal to what they're already receiving. Otherwise, it's too much of a disincentive. So if you make it easy for a person who works for Amazon globally to say, okay, I'm going to go back to Zambia because I can still keep my Amazon paycheck, but I'm going to get taxed a lot less in Zambia than I would sitting in Washington. That person is probably going to take that possibility much more seriously. Whereas if the person's like, oh, I'm going to lose 40% of my paycheck just moving back to Zambia, they'll be like, uh, no, you know, I'm not going to do that. And then a lot of these people also change citizenship sometimes. And it's like, okay, do I want to go through the headache of getting the second passport, become Zambian again, and you know, I need that so I can own property? If you make it easy for them on their foreign passports to still own property, that resolves the question for them. And it can sort of take as much time or not right getting their, their original passport back so it's it's things of that sort which we're trying to fix for right where you create a context where people can cluster together and hopefully as the sort of clustering effect starts to gain momentum and the flywheel is spinning then some people start saying hmm, okay I'm, I'm tired of working for amazon maybe i can start a business of my own and i'm gonna build it out here in zambia so the concept is to make it more attractive. And I think that just hearing what you said, I think your words have a lot of weight behind them because you did so yourself. So you received an education abroad, but you came back to Zambia. And if it's not too personal of a question, can you share your rationale and your journey in that sense? What brought you back home? And already being back at home and having achieved success, what are your thoughts about it now? That's a good question, actually. Um... I had started a business in the UK after graduating uh, from university and we raised something like $30,000. We burnt through it and unfortunately we weren't able to raise again. And so now it's like working um, for other people again. And I started asking myself like pretty existential questions at that point because it was like, I'm, I'm, I was young, I was like 23. But at the same time, I was kind of like, I need to figure out what I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing. And the question I asked myself is like, okay, where do I have the most leverage to contribute change, right? And it kind of felt like in the UK, enough had been done from a sort of social engineering and like economic engineering perspective that the contributions that any one individual now provides are like very infinitesimal, like it's this very 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 minuscule and marginal like contributing to add a basis point to like a, a single percent on the point one right so it's like if growth is 2.1 percent any one individual's contributions are unlikely to even add you know a single digit behind the one at the end there so it, it kind of felt like i was wasting my time living there and instead 
coming back to Zambia, I felt like I would have a lot more to contribute because a lot has to be built still. So I can't put a number on what that looks like, but it just felt like at the time to me, my ability to motivate change or help progress happen would be much more uh, significant in Zambia because the economy is still fairly young. A lot of like the sort of social institutions that need to be built are still fairly nascent. You know, like we're not a sophisticated economy by any measure. And, and so as a consequence of that, I felt like I had a moral imperative to come back and figure things out. I didn't know what the answers to anything would be. Um, I just sort of like assumed I'd figure it out on my return, uh, which luckily I was able to. But yeah, that was my matrix for this uh, decision. So now let's talk about life after coming back home. So you, as you said, you were looking for your calling and it, it really looks like you found it. And I'd love to speak about your project in Kwashi because it's something that I think you are pioneering a completely new concept for Africa. And please share why you think projects like that are important to Africa now and whether or not you think it's something that can gain popularity and expand around the continent, you know, after you've successfully realized it in Zambia. Awesome. Uh, you ask really good questions. So I think it's important for a number of reasons. Like I mentioned, Zambia and again, broadly Africa are still super, super early stages in their, in their stories. So if you look at where urbanization rates are in, in Africa, they're far lower than anywhere else. And if you look at population growth, it's far higher than anywhere else. So it kind of suggests that the, the story of Africa over the course of this next century is going to be an urbanization story. People leaving the countryside, looking for opportunity in cities. And then, you know, the, the question is, are African states sufficiently resourced to make that happen in a non-chaotic manner? And if we look at the data, it, it suggests that they aren't, right? So we've got multi-billion dollar infrastructure deficits across the continent. We, we, we desperately need infrastructure, but it's not going to be built by city councils because for the most part, they are bankrupt, right? And that's because most people don't pay their property taxes in these places and most people aren't incentivized to do so because most city councils aren't providing said municipal services to a level where people feel motivated to actually pay and it's like this really unfortunate situation where because they aren't providing those services no one pays and these entities remain ill-equipped to actually even collect on those taxes and so the consequence is we're going to have really badly planned settlements in africa and so i think what Nkwashi represents is an attempt to try and remedy that through the use of private capital and private sort of like enterprise. And one of the things that we've learned doing Nkwashi is that it's not enough to just have a master plan for a community and to subdivide land and put in core infrastructure. Um, you also have to have a plan for how you're going to catalyze an economy for that settlement. And so what we spent quite a bit of time over the last several years trying to figure out is how to do so. And, you know, we've, we've worked on a lot of experiments and we've settled on education and um, technology as areas where we think we have the relationships and the, the skills to build out institutions that can create employment in those uh, sectors. But if we sort of like scale up to the rest of the continent, I imagine that each 
settlement that will be built over the course of the next many decades will always have its own focus. You know, you're going to have mining towns, oil towns, and, and agricultural zones, and so on and so forth. But yeah, that's what motivates us. It's it's this reality that this urban story is already happening. Africa's population today, like 1.3, 1.4 billion people by the end of the century, are going to be anywhere from four to six billion people. That means, assuming 50% of those live in cities, will be at two to three billion people living in cities, right? We just don't have enough capacity to actually create the homes and the roads and the schools that those people need. And, and so I think private capital will be important. So for a second now, let's let's do a bit of a zoom out. We've been focused on the situation in Zambia, but I'd love to hear your opinion on what's happening globally in Africa and as the so-called, and I, I am not a fan of the way this is worded, but the scramble for Africa, as many use in the media, continues. Media governments and large corporations are pouring a lot of resources into forming the right perception of Africa. And there are very high hopes, I think, with everything from the AFCFTA, what the tech community community is getting up to, talk about the growing population and consequently buying power for new products and services. And just put shortly, expectations are really, really high and maybe in some areas overheated. In your opinion, which areas are not and have the potential to really live up to the hype? And on the contrary, which areas do you think have been given a little bit too much hope than they can actually provide to that level? So I, I think AFCTA is a great initiative and I think it's, it's necessary, right? So it's, it's an important and very sort of like landmark action, but it's, it's, it's missing infrastructure to make it possible in a sort of like more practical way. So for instance, there isn't a rail line linking Congo to Zimbabwe through Zambia. Like the Congolese don't have a rail system that makes that possible. And even between Zambia, Zimbabwe, and say South Africa, the standards and the quality of the rail um, infrastructure is very different. So you, you, it's, it's difficult to have a, a carriage move from Zim to South Africa, right? Because the South African authorities won't allow it on their system because it's, it's not of the same spec. And I kind of think that if you're going to say we want to create a, want to motivate inter-Africa trade or intra-Africa trade, uh, you, you definitely need the infrastructure to support that. You, you has to be, it has to be cheaper to move goods within Africa than it would be to have them come from Latin America to Africa or Asia to Africa. And right now that isn't the case. So there's a big disincentive for internal trade in Africa. And I think that needs to be resolved. Another thing that needs to be resolved is just like a standardized way of dealing with taxation uh, as goods are moving. And I, I think FCTA attempts to deal with that, but compliance will be like a big problem. So I think for the, for the next several years, until that infrastructure problem is resolved, I still think that Africa will end up trading with the rest of the world more than it does internally. So that piece, I think, is a little bit overhyped. The parts which aren't given enough credit, I think, are I think technology is very ignored by the African political class. And I think to a large extent it's because it's difficult to extract rents from. And and so, you know, it's kind of like this thing that young people are doing, 
or we don't understand it yet. Uh, there are exceptions to this. I think Kenya is an exception. I think it's time to get standing. I think Nigeria is another case. I think they, you know substantial flows into technology um, companies have happened in in Nigeria over the last several years, and now it's on the radar of authorities. But it's still very early days. So I'll, in as much as everybody is starting to talk about the promise of tech businesses in Africa, especially since we have a few unicorns now, I still think that relative to the potential of the opportunity, it's actually underhyped. I think part of the problem as well is that African startups haven't yet built global businesses, right? So we're, we're largely building for Africa. And to be fair, I think that's true of Indian businesses and Chinese businesses. I think they've largely been building for their home markets, but it hasn't been true of uh, businesses in Europe and, and North America. They tend to sort of like see the rest of the world as a market. So hopefully that starts to change and African founders start building for the world. But, you know, for now, I think that maybe is one of the reasons why it's still not given sort of like level of importance as its potential to grow would you know, suggest it should have. Yeah, I think those two areas are the ones where I, I see a lot of, sort of like lopsided like interest levels where it's like AFCTA was a lot of hype. Everyone was excited about it, but I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm less sold uh, because of the infrastructure issues. Whereas with technology, it kind of seems like it's still a thing that mostly young people are interested in. Just listening to you now made me think about the current dilemma that we're facing in regards to trade with Africa. Because, for example, one of our largest trade partners, South Africa, it's obviously very far from Russia. And especially since 2022 with sanctions and just different restrictive conditions, it's become even harder to deliver goods to and from South Africa, for example. Uh, and we we feel this clear deficit of trade corridors, which will allow us to increase our economic cooperation with South Africa. And I can imagine that it's quite similar for other African countries. So I think that's definitely a sore spot that we need to work on. You know, as you said, Africa needs to work on within itself, but also for other partners globally to do trade with Africa. And just speaking about Russian business, because this is a podcast that we're recording for a wide audience that includes Russian entrepreneurs and Russian business. And one of the reasons that we launched this podcast was to create a space for dialogue between Africa and Russia. And in terms of investment and business opportunities in Zambia today, what do you think Russian investors should know before setting out on the path of cooperation? Hmm. That's a, that's a good question. I think Zambia is one of those places in the world where it's relatively easy to do business here. So I don't think there are any like esoteric secrets, uh, so to say, um, to doing business here. I think the main thing is mostly about posture, right? So, so Zambia is a very sort of like relational country where, you know, people that you're dealing with, uh, be it like, like formal authorities, be like uh, potential business associates or partners, they want to feel like they, they have a sense for who you are and what you stand for, right? So, you know, an example of this is one of my colleagues from the US, he once told me that I've never been to a Zambian meeting where people say no. <laughs> so it's like, you never really know if it was a good meeting or a bad meeting because they'll sort of like smile at you, they'll say yes, 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 yes. 
but you don't know if the, the yes means yes or the yes means no. <laughs> and the, the reason is they don't know you yet. <laughs> and so they're, they're kind of like are trying to protect your face, so to speak, by saying yes. So they don't, they don't need to lose face. But at the same time, they don't want to commit yet because they aren't really certain as to how sure you are of what you're talking about or whether, you know, um, it's just exploratory or, you know, it could be anything else as well. So the thing to know is that the, the way to know the difference is to actually know the person. So you kind of have to take them out a couple times, find out a little, a little bit about who they are, who their family is, get them to a space where they can give the honest reflections on things. And that's when, you know, they start to sort of like open up. And in the same way that they'll probably only tell you what their true opinions or, or position on a matter is after they've gotten a sense for who you are, I think it tends to be easier for them, to, for like even authorities, right? People in positions of power to build conviction on a specific, say, intervention or, or policy or, or thing once they've gotten a sense for who you are and what you stand for. Right. And then they can sort of like act on that conviction. Until that's the case, it kind of be like very non committal. So, you know, I think that's the one thing I would probably say is a is a thing to watch out for. I think to kind of round up today's conversation, I wanted to ask you to just imagine for a second that Africa has reached its full potential in terms of fostering business opportunities and creating attractive investment destinations. What does that image look like to you? Like a fully realized Africa. Yeah, like the the Africa of our dreams. So I think what that looks like to me, it, it's it's more of a of a feeling than even sort of like a description of say what people would expect, which is oh, I'm honestly skyscrapers all around, flying cars and stuff like that. I think all those things are important, and I think those are part of it. I think you want to see well developed cities you want to see clean environments you want to see great green spaces you want to see really thriving and productive countrysides you want to see really great healthcare and really great institutions you want to see equity in in institutions you want to see equity in public life you want to see a really robust society but given where africa is coming from you know so like a legacy it's it's had in its uh, so like a recent history, like the colonial um, enterprise. I think what it looks like is Africans feeling a sense of um, like pride, right? Rooted in in the achievements that their countries have been able to earn and sustain. So a few months ago, I, I was talking to another colleague of mine and we're talking about a similar concept. And, you know, they asked me, the same question, more or less. And I said to them, it's like, what I see in the world today is that you have nominal equality amongst some peoples, right? So like, for instance, with Africa, yes, Africans aren't necessarily segregated anymore. Yes, Africans are able to run their own countries. Uh, and you can sort of like travel freely if you've got a visa to, to pretty much anywhere you want to. But you will still be feeling a little bit less than right like yeah you're equal but with an asterisk and what i mean is you know when a person asks you where you're from a they might not know where it is and even if they do chances are the image in their head is of you know like a poster of a hungry child or so in a unicef ad right so 
they, they are, they're seeing you as a charity case. They're seeing you as someone who deserves their pity, right? As opposed to someone who deserves their respect or admiration. And I think real equality is when a person talks to you and speaks to you, respecting not just you, but respecting where you've come from, respecting your history, and, and sees that as of equal standing to their own. And I think places like the UAE are places where that's been achieved, right? So it's like when people talk about Abu Dhabi now, they're thinking about it as a sort of regional power, as a wealthy country, one where there's a, there's a healthy respect for its, its cultural legacy. It's like, yes, you know, it wasn't always wealthy. It was once very poor. But look at what they've been able to do for themselves, right? Um, not look what the rest of the world has helped you do. It's, it's, it's what have you done for yourself? Um, Singapore is another one. It's, these are places where when people immediately mention the name, the thing that comes to mind is like, wow, okay, that's a place that it really took itself from nothing and it made itself something. And, you know, there's no pity. There's no sense of, of guilt of wanting to treat them as a charity case. Rather, it's admiration and it's, it's real equality. And I think that's the, the thing I would like for Africans of all types in the future when they're thinking about their continent, you know, that's what I would want them to feel. And that's what I would like for other people to also feel about Africa in the future. It's the sense of admiration and, and respect that you know, is rooted in actual achievement. Yeah. I. Uh... I couldn't have come up with a better way to end the podcast. What what an uplifting message. And I think that it, it definitely speaks to me and to everyone who, with much interest and admiration, is currently working on all issues Africa-related. So thank you for your time. Thank you for your optimistic message. Thank you for sharing your experience. And I really hope that in a couple of years' time, give or take, uh, we'll be able to look back and say, wow, Look what's been done. No worries at all. Thank you for having me. It's been a great chat. Um, loads of great questions and looking forward to keeping the dialogue going. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Africa Dialogues. This episode was recorded under the Mgimo University Development Program Priority 2030.